Over the past few weeks, we have been in a series called The Announcement of Good News, um, looking at a corker of a passage um, in Isaiah 61. It's this passage that speaks of a day when the ancient ruins will be restored, when the people of God will be brought back again into the city. And before we go any further, I just love us um, to read this passage together. And over the past few weeks, we've been um, getting into the habit of kind of standing up and reading this verse aloud. Um, and I'm not one to break tradition. So I just want to encourage you, wherever you are right now, just to stand up and to read these verses with me that will come up on the screen. So Isaiah 61 says this, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. And for anyone wondering, ends at, ends at verse three there, um, missed off the end of the verse. Um, and so a few weeks ago, we looked at this first passage, um, which talks about the good news being proclaimed and a crown of beauty instead of ashes. Last week, um, Pete spoke about binding up the brokenhearted and that releasing an oil of um, joy instead of mourning. And today we're going to be honing in on the last part of this passage, which talks about proclaiming freedom for the captives and that releasing a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. So this prophecy from the book of Isaiah is given to the Jewish people and it speaks into this wider hope that one day God would anoint a Messiah, like the anointed one that would come and bring back the people, that would come and restore God's people. Fast forward a few hundred years later, um, the Jewish people, they're currently living under Roman oppression, and yet they're still holding on to this deep hope that one day a Messiah would come and bring restoration. And in a little town in Nazareth, on an ordinary Sabbath morning, Jesus enters into a local synagogue. He gives, he's given the, prole, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. He stands up and he reads these words. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Like everyone's eyes are glued on him. And then he says this today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing like mic drop moment, like all of these longings and hopes, all of these promises that the Jewish people have held onto throughout the centuries today, they've been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, like the anointed one, the one you've been longing for isn't going to become as this powerful ruler who's going to overthrow the Roman authorities. Something so much deeper, so much more beautiful is happening. Jesus is saying, I've not come to simply defeat the Romans, but to defeat death itself, to set you free from the law of sin and death. In Jesus, a new order is here, like the kingdom of heaven is breaking in. And as you read the stories that follow in the Gospels, when people encounter the person of Jesus, they encounter freedom. The demonically oppressed, the ceremonially unclean, the people who've been excluded from society, Jesus draws them into family and they become a community of people who live in light of the kingdom of heaven. It's a freedom that has the power to cut through despair and to let a sound of praise emerge. And as I've been um, reading for this talk, the stories that I've found have so challenged me because if I'm honest, like my song of praise is often dependent upon my circumstances. 
And yet, as I've been reading these testimonies of just ordinary men and women throughout the ages, whose circumstances are anything but good, who um, kind of from a worldly perspective should not be singing at all, and yet they've discovered a deeper truth, a truer freedom that our world so desperately needs right now. Like it's almost offensive. And yet their stories testify that no matter how dark the backdrop of our lives become, the sound of our lives can be one of praise when our eyes are fixed on Jesus. And it's not the kind of praise that glosses over pain. Like this isn't about a really inappropriate moment, just blaring out a happy, clappy worship song. This is not what I'm talking about. This is the kind of praise that stands in defiance against the disorder of this world. This is the kind of praise that stares pain, even death in the face and says, my God is still good. I belong to Jesus. His is the final victory. I was in um, Vienna a couple of years ago and I was at 24-7 prayer conference and one of the evening sessions was in St Stephen's Cathedral, which I was delighted about because I'm a bit of a geek for architecture. Um, it was lovely. Um, and they'd chosen that night to have the session in St, Cathedral's, in St Stephen's Cathedral because it marks a really important anniversary. It was 80 years ago since an incredible worship event took place. And so 80 years ago, um, on the 8th of October in 1938, um, just to give a bit of context, Hitler was advancing into Austria. He'd set up, um, kind of, he was imposing this Nazi regime, and yet the Cardinal of Archbishop of Vienna chose to defy the regime, and he called for an evening of worship and prayer. So in the heart of St. Stephen's Cathedral, 6,000 young people gather. They flock that night to the city to worship God to lift their song of praise against the darkest of nights, knowing that it could cost them everything. And in the middle of the evening, the cardinal, he gets up on stage, like the crowd hush, all of everyone's eyes are fixed on him. And in this loud voice, he gets up and he proclaims, in, like shouts out, Jesus is Führer, Jesus is Lord. And when the Nazi youth hear about this, they are outraged by the cardinal saying Jesus is Führer. He is openly defying the Nazi regime. So the Nazi youth, they are outraged. They storm the building. They try to burn the cathedral down. And any picture that, um, that depicts Jesus, they take their bayonets to and they stab. And there's one really famous picture that was hanging in St. Stephen's Cathedral at the time. It was this picture of Jesus dying on a cross. And when the Nazi youth come across it, they scoff at it and they take and they rip the canvas with their bayonets. And a few years later, after the war, after the Nazi regime is defeated, the church, they come across this painting lying on the ground at St. Stephen's Cathedral. But in their wisdom, they don't get the painting restored. They hang it as it is with these ugly holes in the canvas because it acted as a reminder that what the world sees as foolish, what the world scoffs at, a man dying on a cross, is actually where true freedom is found. It's not found in systems or in governments or in gaining any kind of power. We can experience true freedom because of the broken body of Jesus Christ. That he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, that the punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we're healed. As we're told in Romans 8, verse 1 and 2, that through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life sets us free from the law of sin and death. And so that night, thousands of young people worshipped in St. Stephen's Cathedral, not, because, not wearing a spirit of despair, but wearing a garment of praise because they'd caught a glimpse of who that man was hanging on a cross. They knew that they had every reason to hope and rejoice, even amidst suffering, because they knew that the ideologies, the political systems of this world will come and go, but Jesus is Lord. 
And I guess my question to you today is, do you know Jesus like that? Like, not just do you know about him, but do you know him like that? Do you know the kind of freedom that allows you to sing in the darkest of nights? You know, I wonder if we're honest, some of us today, we find ourselves pretty far from this garment of praise. Um, and actually, um, we probably resonate more with this spirit of despair. The dictionary definition, um, love a dictionary definition, um, it defines um, despair as a complete loss or absence of hope. Like a complete loss or absence of hope. And I think at this point, it's really important here just to distinguish between kind of disappointment and despair, right? So like disappointment, pain, this is all um, part of normal life. Like we all experience disappointment, we all experience pain. But this spirit of despair, like this mindset of despair is actually something really different. It's the absence of hope. You can be in pain, like you can experience disappointment, grief even, and yet still have hope as the defining narrative of your life. And yet despair is choosing to believe that your circumstances are the truest thing about you. And when that happens, despair starts to define the reality of your life. Like rather than living through a kingdom lens, you see life through a lens of hopelessness. So how do we fix our eyes on Jesus? How do we remind ourselves of the freedom that Christ won for us on the cross? Many of you will have heard of Malala. Um, she's this incredible young woman who spoke out for the rights of um, girls to go to school in, um, in a place where the Taliban occupied. And because of her speaking out, she was shot by them. And miraculously, she survived um, and she's recovered and she's carrying on fighting for the right for girls to go to school. And she's received a Nobel Peace Prize. She's this incredible young woman. And a reporter gets to interview her and he sits her down. And he's like, tell me, like, how on earth did you come to fight for women's rights? Where did that belief that women have the right to go to school, to be educated, where did that come from in you? And she says, that's easy. Like, it all started when I was born. She says, in our culture, um, what happens is when a boy is born, there is a big party. There is a huge celebration. Kind of you get your family around, you get your neighbours around. It's this huge kind of, I was going to say hurrah. It is a hurrah. Um, it's this huge party. And um, what happens is that the guests, they bring money with them and they chuck the money into the boy's crib because they're saying, you're going to be a blessing. You are going to be a blessing to this family. But when a girl is born, it's not quite the same celebration. It's more like this polite gathering. Um, you know, a few neighbours come round and say congrats, but there's definitely no money thrown anywhere. Um, and she said, like, when my father knew that I was a girl, when I was born, he broke the tradition. He declared it a blessing and he invited everyone round to celebrate. He got the neighbours round, he got his family round and he didn't have much money, but he had set aside his own money, his own coins and he gave them, he thrust them into the hands of the guests as they entered, saying, throw the money in the crib because this girl is going to be a blessing. She was born to be a blessing. And so Malala just says to this reporter, it's easy. All of this started from that moment when my father declared me a blessing and not a curse. You know, her father's voice was the truest thing about her. Her father's affirmation over her was the way in which she saw herself and it was the way in which she saw the world. You know, a mindset of despair creeps in when we lose the sound of the father's voice over us. When we take our eyes off him, when we start to listen to those other voices, and in a moment like this, in the craziness that is 2020, it is so easy to t lose the, the sound of the Father's voice. And I just wonder if for some people today, God wants to set you free from an old narrative that's been enslaving you. Maybe it's a narrative that your parents spoke over you as a kid. 
Maybe it's this narrative that you're just never going to be good enough. Or because of what you've done in the past, like if people found out, you'd never be accepted. For others of us, it might be an addiction that we're battling with, something that we've just been reaching to to try and kind of numb the pain or control our fear in this moment. And it's trapped us in a way of life. Like Jesus longs to meet with you today to rewrite your story, to cut through the spirit of despair and clothe you afresh with a garment of praise. And often we need help, don't we, as we walk that freedom out, whether it's recovery programs or other kinds of support. But don't let today go by without opening yourself up to Jesus. There is hope. There is hope. And, you know, for me, this has been part of my story, part of my narrative. Um, as I was growing up, um, kind of the narrative that was swirling around in my mind was that um, I'm valued for how well I do. So like, I'm loved if I do well, that my worth is intrinsically linked to somehow to how well I perform. And when, you know, that's absolutely fine when you do well, but when things go wrong, when you fail, like everything falls apart. And in my later teenage years, um, I had that kind of experience. Something happened which led me to feeling like a total, total failure. And I entered university um, not just processing pain, but kind of questioning my worth. Like, could I ever be loved? And after a few months of university, I just developed this crippling anxiety. Like, I couldn't go into lecture halls. I'd have panic attacks. Um, I felt so, so isolated, so alone. This anxiety was robbing me of life. And I remember one morning just sitting in my university chair and I, I hadn't spoken to God about it at all. I was just angry and simmering at him. But all of a sudden, everything came out and I was just like, Lord, where are you in this? Where on earth are you? I feel angry at you. You've let me down. You're disappointing me. And I just really clearly remember it. Um, this moment came where just I felt the Holy Spirit say to me, Emma, you've got two choices right now. Like you can just shove this pain down and ignore it and just carry on as you are, letting it simmer under the surface or you can bring it to me. And I chose to do the latter. And so what I would do is each day, um, I would pull up this grubby old university chair, it was grim, um, and I'd sit overlooking a pretty grim car park, um, and I would just basically pour my heart out to God. And we're talking kind of angry prayers. They weren't polite, they weren't probably theologically correct. It was just the rawness of me coming out at the Father. And I did it day after day, and he met me there. Like, not in a dramatic way, but he drew close to me as I let my heart out, as I opened up, as I kind of, yeah, spoke to the father about all of this stuff. He met me and it changed everything because in my weakest moment, when I was you know, crippled with anxiety, when I couldn't perform, when I wasn't doing well, I heard the, voice, the father's voice over me. And what he said to me was that you are my daughter, whom I love with you, I'm well pleased. Like I wasn't doing anything. I was ridden with anxiety. I wasn't being a success. And yet he was saying to me, I love you. I love you. I love you. And you've probably heard me tell this story before, but I often tell it because for me, it's the defining moment of my life because it's the moment I encountered freedom. It's the moment when everything I cerebrally knew about Jesus just suddenly became solid ground beneath my feet, where a spirit of despair was broken over my life and praise began to rise up in me afresh. And so if you are sitting here today, ridden with anxiety by yourself, feeling lonely, you're sitting in a room by yourself right now, you need to know that Jesus can meet you in this moment. You need to know that hope can break him. He sees you. He can set you free. It is my story. It is the story of so many others across the world. You know, Jesus never rebukes us for having a spirit of despair. Quite the opposite. 
He's the, they're the ones that he is running towards. So the question is, will you lift your eyes up to him in this moment? Like, will you carve out space just to sit in like a grubby old chair each morning, but just to spend time with him, to remind yourself afresh that Jesus rose from the grave, that death has been defeated, that Revelations 21 is not just this kind of nice thought, it's actually going to be our story, that every tear will be wiped from your eyes. Like we find strength to face whatever is around the corner because our hope doesn't lie in the things of this world. Our hope is anchored in Jesus. You know, I think often in the Western church, we can so often kind of equate praise uh, with this emotion of happiness. And yet praise can be found in the deepest moments of our lament. Like praise can be found hidden in the tears of grief. Praise isn't a denial of pain and of our moments of hurt. It's an attitude of our heart that allows us to look out across the darkest of valleys and summon the whisper that says, I will still follow you. To faithfully walk through those valleys because we see that hope is on the horizon. You know, our praise isn't just songs. It's anything that expresses worship to him, like paintings, spoken word, like prayers, just the choice to daily surrender to him. It's anything that outwardly expresses our gratitude to God, a decision to trust him when we don't know the outcome. And a people like who live like that are incredibly good news to this city. Because as we praise in the middle of our circumstances, it sets others free. Like praise begets freedom. In Acts 16, um, we see Paul and Silas who they've been beaten up, they've been thrown into prison and we find them in this prison cell singing hymns to God. And then all of a sudden an earthquake hits, like the foundations are shaken, prison doors open wide, chains falling off. And yet rather than legging it, they choose to stay in the prison cell. Now, I would like to suggest that if an earthquake happens, if uh, your chains miraculously fall off, if prison doors are flying open, it's probably a sign that God wants to free you from prison. And yet for some reason they choose to stay. But it's because they've grabbed hold of the truth. They've understood something which allows them to stand in front of open prison doors and choose to stay. You know, and the jailer in this moment, he hits this moment of despair because he thinks all of the prisoners have escaped. So he's about to kill himself. But Paul and Silas, they cry out to him, hey, don't harm yourself. They cry out to the person who's just thrown them in jail. Don't harm yourself. We're still here. We're not fearful of prison. We're not scared of being in chains. We have a hope that's bigger than that. And upon witnessing this, the jailer's response, what must I do to be saved? But he recognises that he doesn't have the kind of freedom that Paul and Silas seem to have in the middle of prison. Like, what could London look like if we allowed our praise to be seen in this moment? What impact on our neighbours or on our colleagues could we have if we chose to stick around in this moment, to call out to people in despair, to share the freedom that's on offer to us in Jesus Christ? Like what happens if our neighbours and the people who live down our roads with this, like the street stuff, don't actually remember this year as the year of lockdown. They remember it as the year that they encountered the freedom of Jesus. I just want to land with this story um, that took place a few hundred years ago in the early 1700s. Um, and one night a ship is sailing on the ocean and it hits a humongous storm. It's a bad one. They're in the middle of the ocean and um, the wind is howling. The waves they are crashing over the side of the boats. Everyone on board is panicked, like the crew are panicked. And you know that if the crew are panicked, you're in trouble. So um, everyone's running around fearing for their lives. And yet on the corner of a boat, all of a sudden, these hymns start to rise. And as the people look over, like, why are you not freaking out? 
all of a sudden they just see this group of Moravians, these group, um, they were refugees, and they're calmly singing hymns to God. And the person on the board who um, saw all this happen was a man called John Wesley. And at that moment, he was absolutely terrified for his life. He was fearing death. And yet he saw the Moravians just singing calmly through the storm. And it really troubled him. It deeply disturbed him because he, he didn't know Jesus like that. He didn't have that kind of assurance. He didn't have that kind of freedom in Christ, but he knew that he needed it. And as the months went on, the, the ship was fine. It, it managed to get through the storm. But as the months went on, John Wesley, he finds himself hitting this horrible moment of anxiety. He has to leave his job and the church that he's leading forces him out. Um, he is heartbroken. Um, the girl that he loves goes off with another man. Um, and he's finding himself in this moment of deep uncertainty and frustration. And then he remembers the Moravians had freedom in Christ. He remembers the sound of the song in the night. And this hunger just continually grows in him to know Jesus that way. And that quest to know Jesus like that leads him to, on the 24th of May, 1738, attend a meeting in Aldersgate. And whilst he's there in that meeting, that famous line, his heart is strangely warmed. And he finds the assurance that he's been forgiven, that he is free in Christ Jesus. And within a year of that kind of spark, strangely warming his own heart, the, the Britain is basically set on fire with the gospel. Over the next 50 years, he travels 25,000 miles, telling people of the freedom he's found in Christ, campaigning for social reform, setting the oppressed free. He um, transforms the lives of men and women up and down the country. It is not an exaggeration to say the UK was totally changed because of him. Why? Because a bunch of Moravians chose to worship in the midst of a storm because his heart was captured by a song in the middle of the night. You know, as those Moravians worshipped, a course was set for a nation. Like, don't ever underestimate the power of your praise in the middle of the night. Like, you might not see the breakthrough with your own eyes, but your faithful praise in the darkest of valleys could lead to someone else's freedom. It could shape a nation. It's happened before. We're not called just to be echoes of culture, but to be voices of hope in this moment. And our city needs hope right now. So let's be a people who have our eyes fixed on Jesus, making space to hear his voice, his affirmation over us, that we're his sons and daughters whom he loves. Carve out space in the day just to worship him, whatever that looks like for you. You know, maybe it's just a few minutes each morning, just um, choosing gratitude, choosing to fix your eyes on what he's done for you. Maybe it's through songwriting or, or art or writing kind of blogs, whatever it is, whatever it looks like, let it be known, let us be known as people of praise in this moment. And as we allow praise to rise in the darkest of valleys, trust that it might lead to others experiencing that freedom that Jesus alone can bring.